The Saudi Arabians provide textbooks for Islamic schools worldwide. But, even post 9-11, the books are full of hatred for Christians and Jews. How should Americans react? And Alexander Solzhenitsyn revealed the afflictions of communism to the world. We'll pay tribute to the Nobel Prize winning author. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is Penna Dexter. For the sake of our economy, our security, and the future of our planet, we must end the age of oil in our time. That's Barack Obama, but he went on uh, in a campaign speech uh, talking about John McCain, his opponent, saying he's uh, actually part of the energy problem. Uh, Barack Obama also uh, sort of took a little different uh, position on drilling. In the short term, as we transition to renewable energy, we can and should increase our domestic production of oil and natural gas. But we should start by telling the oil companies to drill on the 68 million acres they currently have access to but haven't touched. Well, that part isn't a change. He also changed his tune on something else, too, saying the government should tap its strategic petroleum reserve. We should sell 70 million barrels of oil from our strategic petroleum reserve for less expensive crude, which in the past has lowered gas prices within two weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. I'm Penna Dexter. I'm sitting in for Dr. Jerry Johnson today on Jerry Johnson Live. And last week, Barack Obama had a little bit of a rough week. Uh, I think it ended with the dollar bill comment, but it was also the fact that gas prices were in the news and the Republicans were on the right side of it. And as a matter of fact, when Nancy Pelosi gaveled the uh, Congress closed last week to go home for a five-week break, 20 Republican congressmen stayed on the floor in the dark, kept talking about gas prices, about the fact that we need to be drilling offshore and in Anwar and Alaska, and uh, they got some good publicity. The American people favor drilling these days uh, as they see gas prices rising. And Barack Obama was, of course, on the wrong side of that and has been all along. Uh, But he says now uh, in campaign speeches that he will consider offshore drilling as part of his quote-unquote comprehensive energy plan. And uh, the Wall Street Journal isn't quite buying it. They're calling it Obama's drill bit. And uh, they're saying that uh, late last week he said he could perhaps support more energy exploration. Uh, And I guess that is the point now. He says we could offshore drill if we have some other rules for conservation, if we subsidize non-carbon fuels, 
And uh, if we do some other uh, recommendations that the Greens are pushing, then he would allow some offshore drilling. He's really trying to appeal to the folks that say he's just too radical on drilling. And uh, the question I have is, do you buy it? Or is this just campaign uh, rhetoric? Do you buy Barack Obama's uh, drill bit? Give me a call, 800-881-9270. Do you think he's serious when he says that we ought to now combine offshore drilling uh, with other measures to increase our energy independence uh, after he's been so strong against it all the way up until uh, the very end of last week. We'd love to hear from you. Again, the number is 800-881-9270. Well, next segment, uh, we're going to talk about another issue. Human rights observer Nina Shea writes uh, that Saudi Arabia's public schools have long been cited for demonizing the West as well as Christians, Jews, and other unbelievers. But after the 9-11 uh, t- attacks, the attacks of September 11, 2001, says Nina Shea, all of that was supposed to change, but it hasn't. If you look at the curriculum uh, in the Saudi textbooks year by year, you see uh, that there is still much hatred of Jews and Christians. And since religion is the foundation of the Saudi state's political ideology, this should disturb us. Also, the fact that Saudi textbooks are used in countries around the world, even in the United States. We're going to discuss this threat, what can be done about it, with Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. He is president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy. And uh, do you recognize, perhaps, this voice? These were the most uh, creative, this was the most creative period of my life, and of course, uh, productive period of my life. Perhaps you recognize it only because he's speaking Russian and because of what's been in the news. That was archived audio from 1994, and of course that was Nobel Prize-winning author Alexander Solzhenitsyn. His son Stephen was translating, and he was talking about good memories that he had of his time in the United States. Uh, his exile at that time from Russia was about to end. He went back to Russia in 1994. The New York Times, uh, of course, Solzhenitsyn died Sunday night at age 89, and the New York Times says that he revealed uh, the heavy afflictions of Soviet communism in some of the most powerful works of the 21st century. He was a Russian uh, high school, country high school teacher of physics and astronomy. He was exiled uh, for his views of the communist state, and uh, we are going to talk about him a little bit later in the program with Dr. Edward Erickson. But right now, we are taking your calls uh, on my question, do you buy Barack Obama's statements that he now would drill and support drilling offshore as a part of his energy plan? Let's go to Sharon in the Mid-Cities. Sharon, thanks for calling in. Uh, yes, you wanted to comment as to how I feel about Barack Obama. Yes, especially and, uh, in an in particular drilling, but really anything's on the table. about his decision to be supportive. Let me reword that. I think that, truthfully, he's going to say whatever he needs to say to do what to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. That's what I think. You think he's the ultimate politician? I think that uh, if something looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And... Um, when you change in midstream, to me, I would rather him have an opinion that is, is way different than mine and at least have the courage to stand up to that. I but think to see somebody that goes back and forth and back and forth with things, I'm very uncomfortable. I think uh, 
we could watch Mr. Obama in the days ahead and to see if this is real, see whether he actually begins to lobby for this. That's if he right. begins to speak with his colleagues uh, in the House and in, in the Senate and also House members, uh, and if he asks them to allow a vote on drilling, which is what's been pushed this past week, perhaps then we'll believe him. But I'm not so sure either, Sharon. Thanks for calling in. Let's go to Freddie in Big Spring. Freddie, thanks for calling. You are on. Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> I just want to say that Mr. Obama is sincere as far as drilling offshore or, any, or anywhere else in this country. I think he just wants to get elected. You don't think he's sincere? No, I really, really don't. I think it's just like you said, uh, political rhetoric, trying to get into the Oval Office. And uh, I don't think he'll follow through one bit. Okay, thanks for your call, Freddie. We've got uh, two votes, don't believe it, and uh, zero, believe it. Give us a call, 800-881-9270, two to zero. Let's see if we can get somebody who believes that Barack Obama really wants to drill offshore as a part of an energy package. Again, the number, 800-881-9270. Don's in Louisville. Don, thanks for calling. It, it's John, but that's okay. Oh, thanks um, for calling, John. I- I don't believe that he's sincere. Uh, he's the most liberal of the Democrats, and the rest of the Democrats don't want him to talk about it, so they close house. So uh, his party doesn't want to do it. What makes me think that he wants to do it when he keeps flip-flopping on all the issues? You think he's trying to, uh, aiming these comments at independents who still possibly aren't sure about him yet? I, I think he's trying to do whatever he can to get elected, and it doesn't matter. He's, he's got some snake oil that he's trying to sell. Okay, thank you very much for your call, Don. Let's go to John McCain. He was speaking today at a campaign appearance. He says Barack Obama doesn't have the answer to America's energy problem. Senator Obama continues to oppose offshore drilling. He continues to oppose the use of nuclear power. These misguided policies would result in higher energy costs to American families and businesses and increased dependence on foreign oil. John McCain continues. Uh, he says that the, nation's, uh, the nation needs to expand its use of domestic energy resources. We need more nuclear power. It means we need clean coal technology. And that means we need to offshore drill for oil and natural gas. We need to drill here and we need to drill now. A little bit later, we'll play one more bite of John McCain, number four, Scott. You can get that ready because we want to talk about a comprehensive uh, picture, sort of uh, a fix for this. It's not only drilling. Uh, it's not only drilling in nuclear, but there are other technologies that have been worked on, and they just aren't cost-effective yet. And uh, so we still need to continue researching those. But uh, meanwhile, uh, gas prices are a problem. Let's go back to the phones and speak with Bob in Terrell. Hi, Bob. Bob, are you there? All right, let's go to DeSoto and speak with Ophelia. Hi, Ophelia. Hi, Penna. Go ahead. I'm not sure if Obama is sincere or not. I don't really know his heart. Only the Lord knows his heart. But I do know that when people run for office, they do make promises. And sometimes those promises don't come to be realized because there's so much uh, other things that they have to deal with when they get into the particular office. Example, but this is one, this is one, though, I think, Ophelia, that he would be able to do if he wanted to. Well, only if he could get the Congress to work together. I think uh, they're getting the message right now. As a matter of fact, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there are still 20 or more uh, Republican House members on the floor. It's officially uh, done. The Congress is done for the uh, August break. 
but they're still talking about drilling, and I think they're going to stay the whole week just to make a point. Thank you so much for uh, your call, Ophelia. Let's go now to Kyle in Denton. Kyle, thanks for calling in. Hello. What's your opinion? Do you think that Barack Obama really means it, that he would be willing to drill as part of his energy plan? Well, it's you know it's hard to know whether he really means it. I think he probably does, but I think it just proves again why we shouldn't vote for him. I think it shows that uh, that he doesn't hasn't spent time studying enough, and now he's probably figured out that that is what he did. And if he had been a legitimate candidate, he he shouldn't have gone along. So I think it just shows his inexperience with with being able to deal with it totally. So it's more about inexperience than it is. Um making a, uh, a campaign promise. Right, that's what I think. Okay, let's go back to John McCain and hear about his thoughts on uh, sort of a comprehensive energy package. We need to aggressively develop alternative energies like wind, solar, tide, biofuels, fuels, and geothermal. But we also need to expand our use of existing energy resources here at home. And I think he's, again, talking about the fact that uh, offshore we could be drilling and uh, should be drilling, and that's the debate Congress will have after they hear from folks back home this month. And you might remember that as uh, your member of Congress is back home and probably holding town hall meetings and uh, other forums. You might want to attend one and just drop in your opinion. Let's go to Bob and Terrell. Bob, you're back. Thanks for calling. Yes, Tana. Uh, I think what we need to do is uh, I'll send Barack Obama a tire inflation tool. Yeah, that's his answer, uh, inflating our tires and keeping our cars tuned up. And uh, those are very good prescriptions. We should all take good care of our cars, but it won't solve the energy problem. It may help each of us save a few dollars, but uh, that was probably an example of uh, sort of naivete about this energy problem and how severe it really is. Well, uh, Kim in Oklahoma, you've got a few seconds. We're coming up on the end of the segment, but I want to let you wait. Kim's gone. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for making the segment and weighing in on this next segment. Uh, we'll uh, switch gears a little bit, although it goes to the same idea of independence and uh, the fact that uh, we're a stronger America if we're independent of some of the Muslim countries. We talk a lot about freedom and democracy. Christianity certainly supports those things. Next up, we're going to talk about what is in the Saudi textbooks. Are they friendly to Christians and Jews? Jim Tonkowicz will join us. I've got a full-time job and a family, and I'm also getting a master's degree at Criswell College. The new Mac at Night program offers evening block courses for a Master of Arts in Counseling degree. It's so convenient and fits my busy lifestyle as a mom and a professional. Mac at Night offers licensure and non-licensure programs so you can gain ministry knowledge and even prepare for a doctorate. Mac at Night professors are at the top of the Christian counseling field. And Criswell College is partnered with a number of ministries, so you'll get experience and great contacts. My friends and family are so excited to see me back in school with the Mac at Night program at Criswell College. A Master of Arts in Counseling has never been so convenient. Come on, join me for Mac at Night. For more details, call 800-899-0012 or visit criswell.edu. Invest in God's kingdom and in yourself through the Chriswell College. See us on the web at chriswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu.
You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Welcome back to Jerry Johnson Live. Thanks for joining me today, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Johnson uh, is away from the studio, and I'm so happy uh, that you are here with me. Well, uh, in Saudi Arabian textbooks, uh, as I mentioned before the break, there is still, even post 9-11, quite a bit of anti-Jewish, anti-Christian indoctrination. As a matter of fact, it begins in the first grade, and throughout the student's life, it's reinforced, it's expanded every year. And in a 12th grade text instructing students, it's actually reinforced again, saying that their religious obligation includes waging jihad against the infidel to spread the faith. Now, the Saudis agreed with our U.S. State Department that uh, they would tone some of this down post 9-11. We're going to talk with someone who knows a little bit more about whether or not this has happened. He is Jim Tonkowicz, and he is president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Uh, Before joining IRD in 2006, he was the managing editor of Breakpoint Radio, and uh, he's got his degree in philosophy from Bates College and a Master of Divinity and a Doctor of Ministry from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Dr. Tonkowicz, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. We were supposed to see some reform of the Saudi texts, and uh, have we? Well, apparently not. Uh, now, I, I, I was uh, reviewing my sources, and I'm not sure exactly why, but my, so my web, web links no longer work. So, so I, I made some phone calls, but uh, it was kind of too late. People had left the office. But as far the understanding that I had is that the, the, the same uh, violent and uh, intolerant teachings that uh, were in, in the textbooks in 2006 uh, are still in the current editions. Early in the program, we quoted Nina Shea, who uh, is a human uh, rights observer, and uh, she's been watching this. In 2006, they definitely uh, were not. And then there's a new report out, I think, that she has put out in 2008 that still states uh, that there's a great concern about the same, and I'm quoting it, the same violent and intolerant teachings against other religious believers noted in 2006 remain in the current text. Taken together, the revisions that have been made amount to moving around the furniture, not cleaning house. Uh, Dr. Tonkowicz, this should concern us, shouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, I mean, they've been talking and they've been talking and they've had conversations with the State Department, and... uh, you know, one way to avoid doing anything is to talk a great deal, and uh, uh, it seems like that's what's happened. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been famous, and we sort of got an education about this after 9-11, for their schools, which are called madrasas, and uh, they teach sort of a, a, a different type of Islam that's very radical, Wahhabism, and so that's why we began to look at this and to try to get some sort of reform uh, if it's not happening, um, we need to be concerned because I'm noting in Nina Shea's materials that in 19 countries, Saudi curriculum is used, correct? Yes, including uh, at least one school in the U.S. Oh, really? Tell us about it. Um, I, it, it it's, it's a local Washington, D.C. school, and they use the uh, Saudi textbooks. And uh, now, the, you know, the, 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 uh, according to an article in the Washington Post, uh, talking to alumni and so on, there was nothing hateful and nothing intolerant and so on. But uh, so I, you know, I, I've never I've never visited, but um, uh, as far as I know, they do use, they do have the books and uh, they do use those books. And uh, Wahhabi 
uh, Islam uh, is several hundred years old. It, uh, the House of Saud uh, grew up with it, adopted it, and um, it not only uh, is a very strict interpretation of, uh, of the Quran and Sharia law, uh, which is the uh, Islamic law, but has injunctions not only against infidels, Jews and Christians and polytheists, anybody mm-hmm. else, and anybody else, but also against Muslims that disagree. And there's a real effort on the part of the Saudis uh, to make uh, Wahhabi Islam the standard Islam throughout the world. Dr. Tonkowitz, that's disturbing uh, to think that even other Muslims who are, um, and we use the word moderate, moderate Muslims, uh, would be considered the enemy under this type of teaching. And I'm looking at um, one of the quotes that uh, Nina Shea pulled out of a fifth-grade Wahhabi textbook. It is forbidden for a Muslim to be a loyal friend to someone who does not believe in God and his prophet, which would be Muhammad, or someone who fights against the religion of Islam. And, you know, we say that we can befriend moderate Muslims, but if this is the type of education uh, that they're getting in their schools, or at least some of them, uh, you wonder if you could really befriend them. Well, yeah, I mean, you wonder, uh, you know, kind of what's going on in the background if they're befriending you. And, uh, you know, and I mean, and again, I mean, I, I've had Muslim friends, and uh, they've been good friends. And uh, but uh, at the same time, this this kind of teaching does it, it, it makes you it makes you nervous, if nothing else. But you know the the, the infidels would include Sufi Muslims and uh, 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 Shiites and uh, and, and others, uh, as well as uh, you know Christians and Jews and Buddhists and Hindus and so on. My guest is Jim Tonkowitz. He is president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy and. Uh, Jim, tell us about uh, the IRD. What is your uh, goal and your mission? The IRD uh, is a, an ecumenical uh, organization of U.S. Christians, and we are we work on the church's social witness, uh, the place where churches and the public square interact, and we we try to uh, in, encourage uh, policies the churches take that are in accord with biblical and historic Christian teachings. Uh, believing that that strengthens democracy at home and that strengthens democracy abroad. So you pay attention to uh, the major Christian denominations, and uh, a lot of them do have their conferences during the summer. And one of the issues that uh, they've all been focusing on that's been divisive in some denominations has been the issue of homosexuality. What have you seen, say, in the Anglican Church, we're going to sort of switch gears here, yeah. and also the Methodists and the Presbyterians? Well, it's, it's been divisive wherever, wherever it's come up. And uh, someone uh, came up to me at the... Uh, Presbyterian Church USA uh, General Assembly, and uh, he was not very happy to see me, and made some comment about uh, Islam, or excuse me, wrong topic, uh, about uh, homosexuality and something about being a tipping point. And I said, "It's a tipping point whether you and I like it or not. This seems to be the real uh, dividing point." Uh, my Episcopalian friends, oh gosh, going back twenty years, uh, said, "You know, I'm a loyal Episcopalian, but if it comes." to marrying same-sex couples, I'm leaving. And it has become a real watershed issue uh, in the Episcopal Church, largely with the uh, consecration uh, of Gene Robinson in New Hampshire as uh, the, the, the Bishop of New Hampshire. Uh, Gene Robinson uh, 
was married, has had two children, uh, began uh, an affair with another man, uh, eventually left and divorced his wife for the, for this other man. They're living together in a, in a committed same-sex relationship. They uh, made that legal in June, and uh, you know this is a man that they they elevated to bishop, and that became a real tipping point not only in the Episcopal Church USA, but uh, in the worldwide Anglican Communion as well. And uh, the Anglicans have just finished their once every ten years bishops gathering. Uh, at Lambeth in England, at the Palace of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and this was a major focus of uh, of the conversation. And uh, there uh, hasn't been a full split in the Anglican Church, but I thought it was very interesting, uh, Jim, that uh, actually Bishop Robinson was asked to stay away. He was he was not invited to the conference at all. Um, he he went to England anywhere anyway, and sort of you know hung around, ha- had hung around, and had events surrounding it but uh yeah it's it's a real it's a real breaking point issue the archbishop of uh the episcopal church of sudan uh called a press conference and said it's very simple um bishop robinson has to resign and he was asked does this have anything to do with islam to kind of go back to our last point and he said you know absolutely uh that christians are affirming uh and uh Celebrating homosexuality uh, puts the Christians in the global south, Christians in Africa, specifically in his case, the Christians in Sudan, in a terrible position uh, where they're even they even fear for their lives. Wow, uh, what do you see in the future with uh, the Anglican Church? Can it uh, continue with sort of the stalemate that they've got right now? I, I as I've talked to people, as I've read, uh, I'm not an Anglican, but I've talked to a number of people, a number of leaders, uh, the feeling is it's, it can't go on like this. Uh, the feelings are too deep. Uh, the differences between the two factions, uh, the, the Orthodox folks and the, uh, the liberal revisionist folks, the, the difference is so vast that, uh, you know, the, the feeling is that they're not even it's not even the same religion anymore, uh, let alone the same church within the Christian tradition. Jim Tonkowicz, uh, thank you so much for joining us. There are lots of other uh, issues I could discuss with you. We'll have to have you back. I, I'd love that. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is not an uh, issue of uh, homophobia or not within a denomination. As Jim Tonkowicz just told us, uh, this even has to do with the national security of uh Bible-believing Anglicans living in Muslim countries. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is important uh, that uh, denominations hold to really the true meaning of the Word of God, the inerrancy of Scripture, and the doctrines that come from their uh, foundations of their denominational groups. Uh, We are grateful to Jim Tonkowicz for watching these things and uh, helping us understand them. Well, next up, uh, as we said earlier, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, Nobel Prize winning author and uh, really observer of communism. He helped us understand communism. He died at age 89. And uh, we're going to talk about his life with one of his biographers, Ed Erickson, will join us next.
You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Я хочу повлиять в лучшую сторону к выздоровлению нашей страны. I would like to uh, have an influence to that extent to the uh, uh, recovery of Russia's health from the most grave situation in which Russia finds itself. He was an observer of Russia, and he taught the world about communism. That was archived audio from 1994, and it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn with his son Stephen translating, uh, saying that when he returned from exile, which he was just about to do, he hoped he could help Russia. And, uh, of course, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was born in 1918, and uh, the National Review says he became the voice and conscience of the Russian people. He ended up uh, winning the Nobel Prize in Literature for literature in 1970, but he dared not travel to Stockholm to receive it. As a matter of fact, during that time of his life, he was sleeping with a pitchfork beside his bed. And, uh, of course, some of the books you may recognize titles, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, and that was a novel about a prison camp inmate one day, but it told everything. And uh, it really caused Solzhenitsyn to be compared to one of the giants in Russian literature like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or Chekhov. Uh, another one of his famous historical works, he also wrote novels, but he also wrote the Gulag Archipelago, and it was account of the, uh, so, an account of the Soviet labor camp system. And it was a chain of prisons, of course, in the Soviet Union. Solzhenitsyn calculated that there were some 60 million who entered the, that system in the 20th century. And uh, for that book, uh, he was exiled from 1974 to the fall of the Soviet Union. And a little past that, he lived in Vermont. Uh, he was mostly reclusive. He was still writing, though. And uh, he even critiqued America. Uh, he spoke at Harvard at commencement ceremony in 1978. And he said, uh, quote, it, uh, America is a spiritually weak, is spiritually weak and mired in vulgar materialism. And uh, with us to discuss the life and the importance of the life of uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn is uh, someone who has co-written a biography of him. Uh, the book is called The Soul and Barbed Wire. And our guest is Dr. Uh, Edward Erickson. He is Professor Emeritus of English at Calvin College. And uh, Dr. Erickson, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm delighted to be with you. Why is, because you've, you've taken the trouble to write this book, and of course this is an important time since uh, Solzhenitsyn passed away last night. Why is his life and his message important? There's probably no single literary author who affected the history of his times as much as Solzhenitsyn did. And I actually don't mean only the 20th century, Though, as David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, said, who else compares? Orwell, Kessler, no one compares. But I mean, and for that matter, Remnick meant, in any age, what writer had such an effect on the history of his times? We can talk about the effect of Solzhenitsyn as a significant influence in ending the Cold War, bringing about the death of the Soviet Union, and thereby uh, eliminating the dream of the utopian state based on ideology. That's an incredible contribution by a man who set out to write fiction. You know, I don't think uh, that you're overstating this, because in one sense, without Alexander Solzhenitsyn, how would the West have known uh, really about how evil communism was? 
Yes, maybe sooner or later, maybe by some other means, but in fact, his was the voice that was heard. <clears throat> it wasn't always welcomed in the West by the cultural pace-setters, though his effect on the intellectual life of France was enormous, and all sorts of leftist intellectuals uh, set aside their, their ideological dream because of him. But yes, I think that he was the vehicle more than any other writer, maybe other people, uh, who knows, Pope John Paul, Ronald Reagan, and so forth, Margaret Thatcher, contributed mightily to the mm -hmm. end of the Cold War, but as a writer, only Solzhenitsyn is in the list. You know, it's surprising. I was thinking about it when I heard the news of his passing. He was 89 years old. Uh, the fact that he actually lived that long, uh, because of his cr criticism of communism and living in the Soviet Union, are mm -hmm. you surprised? Well, uh, let, let's even throw in another factor. At age 34, he was uh, uh, diagnosed as having terminal cancer. This is before he wrote, before any of the works that we know and that have been influential, were written. Um, now, if you believe in providence, as I do, and you put those two thoughts together, the great influence he had and the fact that he almost didn't live to write those books, uh, that, that's really quite a story. It really is. I believe uh, God had then, a plan for him. of course, the, with the uh, living in the belly of the dragon, as he called it, how easily he could have been consumed by the system and simply eliminated he even uh, wrote a book about uh, about cancer, uh, very interestingly. And, of course, his books were just wildly popular. And part of this may be, you know, his influence, Dr. Erickson, the fact that uh, some of his books were novels, and he was such a wonderful writer. And then, of course, there was a sense of, uh, of bravado and bravery about him. Also, he had ways of getting his uh, manuscripts to the public when they might have been squelched, didn't he? Well... He, he pictured himself as engaged in a kind of military struggle, at least the imagery is military. It was uh, one man against the whole uh, totalitarian system that controlled a sixth of the landmass of the earth. And he was always involved in thinking of strategies to protect his work and to get copies of his work into safe hands for instance, into Western hands. Uh, he, he devoted a great deal of time to logistics uh, that are like a military, the logistics of a military battle. Uh, I notice uh, back uh, from his first novel, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, uh, he was a actually able, through someone else, to get Khrushchev to read it and publish it in a journal. How did that happen? Well, uh, yes, he... he there was, there was an atmosphere that Khrushchev had been cultivating that we knew at the time as the thaw. Uh, it was a kind of cultural thaw. In other words, some things would be allowed now that hadn't been allowed under Stalin. The problem was you never knew just what. You never knew what you could get away with and what all of a sudden you'd be punished for, imprisoned, killed, whatever. <clears throat> but Khrushchev's idea was that the uh, that novel that reached him one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich could be used in his Khrushchev's anti or de-Stalinization campaign.
to carve out his own niche in Soviet history as the one who brought some reform of excesses. Uh, well, sure enough, that book is anti-Stalinist, but in broader terms, it's anti-Soviet, and that's where Khrushchev miscalculated, and for which he got eliminated from power by by the others close to authority, close to the throne. We would say, we might say. But in the broadest terms, that book is also simply anti or opposed to dehumanization of any sort, the treating of human beings as if they are less than human. And therein lies not only his uh, relevance to the Soviet Union, but his universal applicability. And it's from that that all of us in the world learned and still can learn. My guest is Dr. Edward Erickson. Uh, he is Professor Emeritus of English at Calvin College, also co-author with Alexis Klimov of uh, The Soul and Barbed Wire, An Introduction to Solzhenitsyn. Uh, I think there might be a resurgence uh, of biographies of Solzhenitsyn as well as his own writings, don't you think? Yes, I, I would love that. Only part of our book is actually biography, and the rest is uh, a critique of his various works. And the chapter on his beliefs, if you can imagine it, there is no single place until this book where you can go and read in brief a distillation of his basic beliefs, which are religious beliefs, and then a chapter on his reception. This book is so new, I have first copies right now, and in fact I am at this, was at this moment when you called, inscribing my copy to his wife. Hmm. Well, we say widow, I guess, now, uh, because she, we want her to have a copy. But the book will not is not even in bookstores yet. It will be, maybe later this week, maybe next week, but this is really fresh off the press. And in my inscription to her, I said I would like to think that this book could be a harbinger of renewed and increasing, increasing appreciation of the immeasurable impact that he has had on our world. And uh, the book is from ISI Books. Is there a way people can get it uh, if it's not in bookstores? Well, it, it, it will be in bookstores as soon as it gets out of the bindery and delivered. But people could go to the ISI website. I mean, do you want me to say that? Sure. It's uh, www.isi.org, as brief as that. Okay, we love those folks. Uh, listen, uh, Dr. Erickson, thank you so much. I think uh, my final question to you would, it probably is hard to choose, but what would be the one thing you would uh, hope that Americans would understand about Solzhenitsyn? That uh, all of his criticism of the Soviet Union, of geopolitical matters and the like, his criticism of the West included, he wasn't always only critical, he appreciated much, much, that all of it is couched in his religious belief, in his faith in God, as a sovereign ruler over all of the universe and our individual lives. It's the Christian context of his moral vision that you're going to read almost nothing about in the um, obituaries that are now appearing. And in that is true greatness. Dr. Erickson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me here. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, next up, uh, we're going to talk about single-issue voting. Is it a good idea or a bad idea to concentrate on one or two important issues when you're choosing a candidate? We'll talk about it next on Jerry Johnson Live. 
I've got a full-time job and a family, and I'm also getting a master's degree at Criswell College. The new Mac at Night program offers evening block courses for a Master of Arts in Counseling degree. It's so convenient and fits my busy lifestyle as a mom and a professional. Mac at Night offers licensure and non-licensure programs so you can gain ministry knowledge and even prepare for a doctorate. Mac at Night professors are at the top of the Christian counseling field. And Criswell College is partnered with a number of ministries, so you'll get experience and great contacts. My friends and family are so excited to see me back in school with the Mac at Night program at Criswell College. A Master of Arts in Counseling has never been so convenient. Come on, join me for Mac at Night. For more details, call 800-899-0012 or visit criswell.edu. Invest in God's kingdom and in yourself through the Chriswell College. See us on the web at chriswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Welcome back to Jerry Johnson Live, ladies and gentlemen. I want to know if you think it's wrong or if it's okay to be a single-issue candidate. Most people aren't. Uh, Most people can lean to the right or the left on various issues, economic issues, national security issues, social issues. Uh, But a lot of times the religious right gets criticized for majoring on abortion and on the homosexual agenda right now that's uh, epitomized in same-sex marriage. Joel Bells, who is the uh, publisher and founder of uh, World Magazine, in a, in a piece that uh, was in his, uh, let's see, July 12th and 19th issue, said, stop apologizing. It's not always wrong to be a single-issue advocate. Do you think it is? Give us a call, 800-881-9270. Is it okay or wrong? to be a single-issue candidate. And, you know, what's really happening right now is there's a political generation gap forming among the evangelicals. And uh, how long this will last, I think, is going to be measured by how much success Barack Obama has in his outreach to young evangelicals and also to young Catholics. His campaign is trying hard to reach out to these people. In fact, they're planning rock concerts and also uh, faith-based meetings in college dorms. And as we know, he's doing well among young people right now in the polls. Uh, But, you know, it's very interesting today. The national poll from Rasmussen shows a dead even heat uh, between McCain and uh, Obama among uh, the national registered voters. And so that's uh, that's interesting. But it's the young people who are still leaning Obama. Uh, and he's going to be talking to these young people at these concerts and these different outreaches about fighting poverty, because that's what the polls show is important to young people. In fact, the Pew Forum's uh, Religious Landscape Survey, remember we uh, talked about that a few weeks ago, says shows us that 58% of young white evangelicals would, would actually choose bigger government, providing more services over smaller government providing fewer services because of their uh, attention to the poor. It's the reverse among um, older evangelicals. But some political observers are expecting it to change. You know, as people get older, they tend to get more conservative. They get financial success and they begin paying taxes. They get a little bit more economically conservative. But right now we are seeing, and probably in this election, a political generation gap. And that brings up the question, is it wrong to be a single-issue voter? If you're a young person and you are very concerned about the poor, should that be uh, your main 
uh, impetus for voting, or do you need to spread out and look at the social issues like abortion? Well, let's go to Tyler in Arlington and see what he thinks about it. Tyler, thanks for calling in. Good afternoon, Penna. Well, I think just like uh, previous shows that you've had regarding theological issues, there, there's nothing wrong with having one or two or even maybe at most five core tenant beliefs about the political structure that you should be baselined on. If if you, you know, are concerned about the poor as well as, you know, other things, but you are not going to change your view on marriage, that's not a bad thing. Because if you if you cannot trust the people that you are voting for to at least hold certain core beliefs the same as you, then how can you even hope for them to vote the same way for you on other issues? I think some of the young people are looking at uh, Barack Obama and saying, uh, this is somebody who is going to have programs that are going to, you know, basically help the poor. That's what they think. It may not be the case, but that's what they think. Yet they're pro-life, but maybe they're just not placing their pro-life credentials as high on the list. Well, but you got to think, though, I mean, if, if someone is really wanting to help the poor, but is no, or is indifferent, rather, to the idea of someone killing an unborn child or a child that is born that, you know, the late-term um, abortion, you know, how can they value the life of someone who's living and impoverished more than someone who is just trying to come into the world? Tyler, you're just making too much common sense. Thanks for uh, your call. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, Joel Bells uh, really basically agrees with Tyler's assessment here. In fact, um, when you look at this, uh, Young white evangelicals are still twice as likely as their peers to identify them as Republicans. So there are still a lot of uh, young young people in the Republican Party saying they're Republicans. Uh, but this recent survey shows that they aren't as loyal to the Republican Party, but they are more, more pro-life. And uh, I think the life issue is important. On this show, it really is the top issue, the uh, the protection of human life, the right to life enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, younger Christians are less concerned about the homosexual agenda, though, because uh, they really oppose the same-sex marriage issue less fervently than their elders. They don't see as much what's wrong with it. And they really don't get what their elders, you know, how obsessed uh, we tend to be with homosexuality. But I think a lot of us are looking at the institution of marriage and other things uh, that are at risk here. Uh, that evangelical manifesto that we discussed earlier was kind of along the same uh, lines, criticizing evangelicals for identifying themselves with the Republican Party and majoring on abortion and majoring on same-sex marriage. But Joel Bell says evangelicals shouldn't be embarrassed to say boldly and clearly that abortion and same-sex marriage are uniquely heinous sins. And uh, the reason is, he says, and I'm quoting him, they rattle the foundations of a civilized society. He really agrees with Tyler's assessment that uh, life is bottom line. And uh, if you don't have respect for the sanctity of human life, then uh, your concern for the poor rings a little bit hollow sometimes. And it's not that evangelicals who are pro-life, who are not concerned with the poor, it's not either or, but life just tends to be uh, bottom line for them. And one thing Joel Bell says is that when we say this, when we say that the sanctity of human life and the threats to it and the threats to marriage rattle our society or rattle our foundations, we are not wrong and we are not fanatics. So should we be compassionate toward women facing unwanted pregnancies and thinking about abortion or to people who are caught in homosexuality? Some people see us as 
you know, mean-spirited when we oppose abortion or oppose some of the rights, quote-unquote, rights of the homosexual agenda. Well, we should be compassionate, but we shouldn't affirm their sinful choices because God forgives individuals, but he judges societies that lead individuals astray. That was one of the points that Joel uh, Bells made uh, in this um, particular uh, piece in World Magazine. Well, uh, also Christina writes in to say, be the change you want to see in the world. Don't wait for the government to take care of you. That's a very interesting and I think a conservative view of government. Don't wait for the government to take care of you. As Christians, we should be trying to help. Jesus said that the poor will always be among us, but that we should try to help them anyway. Uh, Christina says she votes morals and she's with Tyler. Well, thank you very much, Christina. Now, pro-life and pro-family Christians do not promote insensitivity to the poor or the trashing of the environment, that's another issue they push, or racism. Abortion and gay marriage are promoted by their advocates, though. Joel Bells points out in this piece, a consistent environmentalist should be at least as strong for protecting human life as for protecting polar bears. Plus, as we've said before, to be pro-life is to be against racism. The children of blacks are aborted at a much greater rate than white babies. As for the poor, who Christina says will always be with us, we've drained the economy by aborting 50 million consumers and producers who could have contributed to our economy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Joel Bells also says that if we advance abortion and gay marriage, we are upsetting the balance God so wondrously installed in his creation order. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.